you have your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Exodus, and we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 25 through 27 this morning. And for all of you who are here this morning, extra stars because it's daylight savings time, and I'm a morning person, and it was even hard for me to get out of bed at the appropriate time this morning. And also wanted to put in a little uh, more of a plug for coming out and hearing Chris Pleckenpole. He's going to be coming and sharing on Friday uh, evening. There's going to be dessert there on that, and then on Saturday... There's going to be, he's going to speak a couple times and we're going to have games. Cornhole will be out there. Chris Kelly will be, I think, manning that one and uh, other games. And he's going to speak a couple times on Saturday. We'll have the grills fired up and there'll be various foods to eat. We're going to kind of make it like a field day type atmosphere. Um, and then Sunday morning, he's going to be speaking. Chris is a, a dynamic speaker and we really encourage you all to come out and uh, just uh, to hang out with us and to hear from God uh, on Friday evening, Saturday, and then on Sunday morning. So again, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus 25. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book. Exodus is the second. And if you've come this morning just kind of checking out Christianity, there's a little bookshelf in the foyer there that has Bibles and other Christian resources back there. Please feel free to pick up anything that uh, you find interesting. We're just really glad you're here this morning and hope you feel very welcome. So we've been looking through the book of Exodus and the storyline. God has taken his people out of slavery in Egypt. He has redeemed them. He's brought them across the Red Sea. And now they are gathered around Sinai. He has communicated his truth in the Ten Words or what we call the Ten Commandments. Then he's laid out a bunch of other regulations and rules that are called the Book of the Covenant, basically an application of those Ten Commandments, and then we saw last week that the people basically ratified this, this agreement, this covenant, this, this relationship agreement of how they're to relate to God, and they said, we're all in, and we saw that picture of, of the people coming to the base of the mountain and an altar and sacrifices being made there, and then a group of the Israelites, the 70 elders, and Aaron and Hur and Moses and Joshua go up some distance on the mountain and that basically they see God or at least the feet of God and the pavement that he's on and they they eat and they drink in fellowship with God and then God calls Moses and Joshua up farther and the mountain and that's kind of where we pick up the story now as Moses is receiving kind of the instructions from the Lord these are instructions on on building the tabernacle and instructions on on the priesthood and how the whole kind of religious system of Israel is is going to be organized. And uh, we get into this section of Scripture, and it's uh, chapters 25 through 31, and then that's the instructions about building the things and all the priest's garments. And then there's a few chapter hiatus, and then in chapter 35 through 40, we pick up, and it details almost exactly the same thing, but it's the building and the making of all this stuff at that time. So I'm not going to go through all of this verse by verse. That would be a little bit too tedious, I think. So the reality is I want to take kind of a big picture view this morning. And this morning I'm going to look primarily at the tabernacle. And next time we're going to look at the priest's garments and just kind of what that communicates. But to me, it's important as we look at this as believers living in our century, and this is centuries and millennia before to say, okay, what is the big picture that's being presented here? To me, throughout Scripture, from the very beginning, God is calling us back into his presence. Despite our rebellion, despite 
our turning our back on God, saying basically, I want to be my own God. I want to call my own shots. I want to write my own regulations. I want to be my God. And then God recognizes, okay, these people are, are stubborn, but I want to be with them. I love them. And, and so we see him calling out a group of people to be especially with him. And that kind of continues. So how do we get into the presence of God? And God has orchestrated this system for the Old Testament believers to experience his presence. And to me, the purpose for all of this is found in chapter 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God's purpose in all of this is I want to dwell in their midst. I want to be with my people. Despite who they are, despite their brokenness, my desire is still to be with them. And so I'm designing this system so that people can experience my presence. And we saw last week that God at the top of Sinai, you know, there's thunder, there's lightning. It's terrifying to these people. So how do we move into the presence of this holy God? And, and here we see basically God is telling them, make a portable Sinai, make a place where my presence dwells with my people. And we see even when this temple or this tabernacle is kind of dedicated that God's presence in the cloud comes down on this place, kind of the same thing as it came down on Sinai. So he's saying, I want to be, I want to dwell with you, my people, but you can't just waltz into my presence. I am a holy and majestic and righteous God. So this is how we're going to do it because I want to be a God that dwells among you. I want to be close to you. So to me, that's the heart of God through all of Scripture. He's calling us back to Him, but we can't come in any way we want. And that's kind of contrary to the thinking of our world today. You know, you'll hear people say, well, my God is like this. And you fill in whatever, you know, He never judges anybody. He's totally cool with everything. And yada, yada. And, and okay, you can say that. But my question with that was, does that really match the actual God that we're called to relate with. And to me, in a lot of those kind of custom designer gods that we have, that's not who God actually is. And we've seen a picture of who God is, and we're going to see that more and more, the holiness of God, but also his desire to be with his people. So he sets up this whole system, and we come, and we can only come in the way that he wants us to come. We just can't waltz into his presence. Yo, dude, man upstairs, I'm here, yeah. Nobody in Scripture he who even encounters one of God's mighty angels goes into it in that way. Most of them, what happens? They fall flat on their face. They faint. They go out. This presence overwhelms them, right? Even Isaiah, the prophet of God, a man called by God, he, he encounters the presence of God, and he says, what? Woe is me. I'm undone. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And this is a prophet of God encountering God. He says, oh, it's all over. <laughs> and God touches his lips with a coal, cleanses him. But he says, I want to be in your presence, but there needs to be this cleansing that takes place. You can't just waltz into my presence. So I want to look at this passage in terms of how do we experience the presence of God for us today? But we go through the whole setup of the tabernacle to kind of give us a picture of what that looks like. And the first thing I think we need to do is we need to ask ourselves a question. Do I want God to dwell with me? Do I want God to be near? Do I want to experience 
his presence. You see this at the beginning in chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may make for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, the ephod and the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, you shall make it. I hope you brought your goat's hair this morning to stuff into our little offering box back there. But the reality is God is calling his people to be involved in building of this tabernacle, this place that will be the portable presence of God with these people. And he's coming to them as a nomadic people, right? So he's coming to them and he's setting up his presence in a way that will travel with them. Later on, when the monarchy is established, when people are in the land and Jerusalem has been established. David says, I want to build you a temple. And God says, no, not David, but Solomon will build you a temple, which is just an elaborate, more elaborate picture of the tabernacle here. But the reality is God is desirous of being with his people. But notice what he does. He doesn't demand a contribution from everybody. He says, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. God is not demanding that people experience his presence, but he's desirous of that. The question is, do we want that? As men in Iron Men group were reading a new book, Gentle and Lowly, it's the only time in Scripture where God, in the form of Jesus, tells us what his character is like. And he says, I'm gentle and, and humble or lowly in heart. Do you have a concept of God that he's humble? He doesn't force himself into our lives. He doesn't demand that we respond to him, but he's graciously calling us into his presence. James says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. But it takes a step on our side to draw near to him first, then he responds. In the book of Revelation, in talking to the very lukewarm church in Laodicea, Jesus is pictured as knocking on the door. He's knocking on the door of the church, right? <laughs> this isn't to unbelievers. This is the church. And he's saying, I'd love to come in and to dine with you and to eat with you, to have fellowship with you. But Jesus doesn't come in and say, okay, man, I've got the battering ram. You know, we've got the SWAT team. We're coming in. We're busting the door down. We're going to demand that you experience our presence as the Trinity of God with you. He graciously knocks on the door. And the question is, are we wanting and willing to open the door? You see this in Jesus teaching often. He teaches in parables and people are scratching their head and wondering, what in the world does this mean? And it's this, this design where God has set it up. So if you want to know more, you got to go into him and say, what did you mean by that, Jesus? What, what are you saying here? So the, this longing that God has to dwell with us needs to be accompanied by our willingness to move into that. And he's calling people here to give up something, to give up something probably that was valuable for them. If we're going to experience closeness with God, I think we're going to have to give up some stuff. And probably the biggest thing that we have to give up is the right to use our own time the way we want to. And we need to say, God, I want to be in your presence. So though I'd maybe rather 
be playing video games or watching sports or reading a book or vegging out or taking a nap or sleeping in. I'm going to give this time to you. I want to experience your presence. And to me, you look at these things, you know, gold, silver, bronze, all this stuff is listed in kind of decreasing order of, of value. And I'm thinking, okay, these people are slaves. You know, how much gold do they have? But remember the story when they left Egypt, right? The King James said they spoiled the Egyptians. They, the Egyptians gave them all sorts of great stuff. So here God is saying, basically, are you willing to give back to me some of what I have given to you? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, what do you have that you have not received? And to me, when God asks for something, it's a recognition on our part. It's like, wow, he's given me every moment I have. He's given me the talents and the abilities that I have. And if you've succeeded tremendously, that's wonderful. But it's not just you picking yourself up by your bootstraps. Who gave you the opportunities? Who had you be born in the family that you were born in, allowed you to get the education you have, gave you your talents and your abilities and your mental acumen, all that kind of stuff. Where did that come from? Did you generate that on your own? No, it's all a gift from God. And he says, if you're going to experience closeness with me, are you willing to give some of this that I've given to you back to me? To me, there is no place, absolutely no place in the church for manipulative evangelistic techniques or appeals for fundraising. When you hear that and when you see that, it should raise all sorts of red flags in your mind. God does not work in that way. Here, what does the Lord tell Moses? You just let the need be known, and as every person's heart gets moved by me, they'll give towards this. So be careful for that. And I've seen so much manipulation in the name of Jesus Christ in the church, and it should not be. It should not be. So here, God is drawing these people. He says, I want to dwell among you. And the way that's going to happen in this stage of my relationship with my people is going to be through this tabernacle. And I want you all to give towards that. And these are the things that I want you to give. And so he's drawing them as they draw close to him. And I think the other thing that I see in this whole picture of the tabernacle and the staffing of the tabernacle is that we're only going to experience God's presence when we approach him in the way that he has provided for and he has designed for us. Several times throughout this section, you'll see, like in verse 9 of chapter 25, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. As I have shown you the pattern, so you shall make it. Make it in the way that I've told you to make it. And like I said before, that runs kind of contrary to our modern thinking that, yeah, we can relate to God any way that, you know, kind of moves us, right? There's a whole psychedelic move of taking acid now to kind of connect with God in a spiritual plane. You know, we're moving back to the 60s again. What goes around comes around right in that way. Or, or man, I really yeah, am moved by God when I take some psychedelic mushrooms. I just feel God's presence. You know, you may feel something. I, I don't doubt that. I think there's a lot of spiritual experiences that are real out there. I had a friend that was really into the New Age movement, came to Christ, but he described all sorts of amazing experiences that he had when he was meditating. But to me, the question is, what is the source of those experiences? And scripture is pretty clear that Satan can even disguise himself as an angel of light to deceive and to dupe us. So here God is saying, I want you to come in the way exactly as I have prescribed it. 
And again, we don't like that because we want to make our own way. We want to relate to God in our own way. And we see this going all the way back to Cain and Abel, right? Abel brings the sacrifice that probably God had communicated that he wanted, and Cain brings some of his crops, and he's just all ticked off, right? And God says, if you do what's right, if you come in the way that I've said, it'll be okay. But what does Cain say? No, I'm going to come in my way, and if it's not taken my way, then I'm done. And he murders his brother. So this idea of I want to come to God and I want to approach him in any way I want is kind of deep in us. And so we've got to kind of push back against that. And God's making that very clear in this section of the design of the tabernacle and the priests and the garments and all that kind of stuff. Make it according to the pattern that I show you. You can't just walk into my presence and waltz into my presence in any way that you want. And for the ancient Israelites, this is kind of how God designed it. First, we see the ark. And don't think Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, when you open the thing up, then come, it's, that's highly speculative. Right, verse 10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two of the rings on one side, two rings on the other. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the test ark the testimony that I shall give you. That's the law. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered Work you shall make them on two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end, one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and the ark you shall put, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you, speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So God says, I want you to build this ark of acacia wood. And acacia wood is a common wood. It was very strong and very light, which is great for nomadic people as you're carrying this stuff around. Gold's not so light. So, and, and on the ark, it's the only thing that says keep the poles for carrying this thing in it all the time. And to me, as you as we look at the picture of the furnishings of the temple, the closer you are into the presence of God, the more valuable the materials are used to construct this. And here we see this mercy seat. And what is a mercy seat? You know, as a kid, I thought a mercy seat, you know, is on top of the ark. There's is there a little seat that you know the high priest sits on or God sits on? No, mercy seat means place of mercy. Kaporet literally is the Hebrew. It's this whole cover. And in Hebrew, uh, words are made with kind of three consonant roots. KPR is this one. And that's the root for atonement. So this idea that this is a place where mercy happening happens. And its seat is not like a physical chair. A seat means like the seat of government, the place where government happens. And, and so the idea is this is the place where, where mercy and atonement is encountered. And so this is the very place where God's presence is located. It's interesting that the kind of size of this ark was the size of 
in the ancient Near East, many kings kind of footstools. And that's a picture of, of the ark. Sometimes it's a footstool of God, that God dwells in, among, above the cherubim. And cherubim are these magnificent beings. Don't think of the fat little pudgy angels that fly around, you know, and stuff like that. These are magnificent creatures. We encountered them where before in Genesis, right? At the garden, blocking the entrance to the tree of life. These are magnificent magnificent, majestic, probably some of the most powerful spiritual beings. They're associated with the throne room of God. And as we get into this, we're going to see that on the, um, the, uh, the curtain that's between the holy place and the most holy place, two cherubim are put there. And I think both to indicate the presence of God, but also to recognize you're dealing with a holy God here. That should take you back to Genesis and the two cherubim. It's like you just don't waltz into the presence of God. But Moses had this access. This is where he would meet with God. And then later on, we recognize that this is the place where the high priest goes in once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer atonement for the people. And to me, this is a beautiful picture of this atonement cover. The, the cherubim are looking down, and I think the, the picture is that God is so holy they can't look up at him, right? But the beauty of it to me is that in the midst of all of this is the mercy of God. That's at the core of who he is. And we're going to see this as he describes himself in chapter 34. I'm not going to go into detail now, but this is the Lord passing before Moses and proclaims, this is the Lord saying, this is who I am. The Lord or Yahweh, the I am, the I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. So this idea at the core of who God is, he's saying, this is the kind of God I am. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm forgiving. So here we see this cover of atonement covers over the testimony or the tablets of the law. So God and his grace covers over the law for us, and it's a place of mercy that we encounter God. So we are not treated as our sins deserve. There is mercy at the heart of God. And then goes on, and we see this table that comes, and on this table, the bread is laid out. And I'm not going to go in and read verse by verse all these details here, but it's a table basically of gold, and Leviticus tells us that there are 12 loaves of bread that are set out on this table. There's also some jars and other stuff for liquid offerings that are on this, this table, and it's this place where it's called the bread of the presence. So what does that relate to as I was thinking about this? It's like, okay, 12 loaves. To me, that's pretty clear that each of those loaves is for one of the tribes of Israel, right? So I think in this and in many ancient religions, God needs to be fed, right? But I don't think that's the picture at all here. The offerings that God receives are those offerings that are completely consumed on the altar, the whole burnt offerings. And we see that kind of going up figuratively in smoke to the Lord. And even the liquid offerings to God were poured out on that altar. Here, to me, what the picture is, is this God has this desire to to provide for all of our needs, to, to nourish us, right? But also to fellowship with us. We saw back in, in chapter 24 that as the 70 went up, what did they do? They ate and drank with God. That's the nearest kind of thing that this, to me, is pointing to. This is desire of God. I want to fellowship with my people. 
And if you're from a Middle Eastern culture, Peter, you know the importance of, of a meal and a fellowship meal with one another. And God's saying, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. So this table with the bread. And then we have the lampstand or the menorah, right? It's to give light to this sanctuary. And it's to be constructed out of, out of pure gold. And the priests are told to keep this thing burning every night. And to me, this is a beautiful picture of, of God being light, right? Jesus was the light of the world, you know? In him was life, and that life was the light of the world. Life and light are so connected. We live in a dark place, but God is saying here, my presence brings light, brings clarity, brings understanding, shows the way to go. We get to the end of Scripture where we have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it's interesting. It's a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies, as it's described here, is also a perfect cube. And what's said there? There's no temple there. Why? Because the Lord and Jesus and God are going to be there. They're the presence of God. That's what the temple represents. And also, there's no need for sun and moon. It doesn't say there's no sun and moon, but it just says there's no need for sun and moon. Why? Because God is providing light at that time. So to me, this picture of God's presence brings light, brings illumination in the midst of the darkness of the world. I also wonder if it's kind of like the Tombow debt thing. I'm going to leave the light on for you. That, that, that there's always an openness to, to God's light, that that's going to be constantly illuminating His presence even at night, there's going to be light. And one of the regulations was the priest got to keep this stuff burning every night. They got to light it and it's got to be lit. So there's no time in this tabernacle where it's not going to be light. There will always be light in this tabernacle. And then we move out and we encounter the altar as we move out. And this is outside of the, the tabernacle. So Annie, you want to put up the picture of... Okay, this is just an artist rendering, obviously, but uh, towards the back there, you see in the Holy of Holies, you have the ark with the cherubim on the cover. Then you have the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the front, and you have the altar of incense, which isn't talked about in this section, but you've got the, the menorah or the lampstand there. You've got the table of the showbread um, that comes from Luther Schaubrot. Um, at the table of the bread there. And uh, so then let's move to the next slide. And so this is a picture of the entire kind of courtyard. Um, and so there is the altar that's closest to the entrance there. Behind that is the labor or the bronze wash basin where the priests would wash. And so God has designed all of this. And later on, it goes into all the details about the courtyard and what these materials are going to be made of and how the tabernacles to be constructed. And basically, the closer in you are to the Holy of Holies, the more valuable the material. And uh, it talks about blue, you know, blue yarns and stuff like that. Blue was the most valuable kind of fabric at that time because it was made in this painstaking process of taking these tiny mollusks and it would take thousands of these mollusks to make enough dye for one garment. So these garments were super, super expensive. So the covering over the entire inside of that tabernacle was made of that blue, most valuable yarn. So God's saying, 
In my presence, there is beauty and majesty, the greatest that you can experience in this world. And I'm going to picture that by blue cloth, and I'm going to picture that by gold, right? And then as you move out from that, you know, and then you have um, goat's hair, and then you've got a couple layers of just leather, basically, that are covering over the tabernacle. And I said, what a beautiful picture. You know, here we have this thing from the outside. You're looking at it, and it's like, that's not so impressive. <laughs> it's just a tent. It kind of looks rough, maybe a little weather stained, but the beauty is encountered inside. And I say, what a beautiful picture of Jesus, right? That Isaiah tells us he had no beauty or majesty externally that would attract us to him. But he's the very son of God, full of grace, full of truth, full of beauty. And he's wanting to be present with us in this world. And to me, as, as you look at this, it tells us in, in this section that, that the courtyard is to be oriented so that the entrance here, these shorter, there's two shorter walls and then one longer, uh, those, those fabric walls, the entrance is to be oriented towards the east. Why do you think that is? Right, what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve were booted out? Where did they, they go? They went to the east, right? When Cain sinned, where did he go? He went further to the east. So I think this is a beautiful picture that God is setting up his presence with the door open to the east, saying, in essence, all of you east dwellers, all of you folks that rejected me and didn't want me to be Lord of your life, my presence is open to you. I want you to come in to my presence. And to me, how things are ordered is a beautiful picture here. You come first through the entrance. You've got to be willing to come. But the first thing you come to is the altar of sacrifice. We don't waltz into the presence of God without a sacrifice. And then accepting that sacrifice, you go to the laver where the priests would put in their hands and their feet and they'd wash themselves there. And to me, remember the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and Peter's like, well, I'll wash my whole body. And he's like, no, no, you're already clean. You just need your hands and feet washed. So I think the sacrifice has made them complete. But then as we walk through life, our hands and feet get dirty. We, we sin. So we need to confess those things and be cleansed of those things. But then we enter into the presence of God where Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the intercessor for us, right? So all this to me is a picture of God's presence with us. And then it allows us actually, we know from New Testament where the curtain is ripped from top to bottom, that we have access as believers into the very holy of holies. And to me, all of this is just a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That God wants to dwell with us, but we need to come in the way that he has prescribed. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me or by me. In the beginning of John's gospel, in John 1.14, says, you know, Jesus dwelt among us. And that word dwell there in Greek is the same word that's used for tabernacle. He tented or he tabernacled among us. And later on in John, he says in chapter 2 that destroy this temple and I'll what? Rebuild it in three days. That Jesus says basically, I am the temple of God. Uh, the tabernacle moves to the temple and Jesus said, this is, is me. I am what this pictures. 
You can come into my presence. You can encounter me, the light, the bread. All of these are pictures of, of who I am and I want to be with you. I want to dwell among my people. So how is this relevant for us, all this Old Testament stuff? To me, the first thing is to just look at Jesus as fulfilling the temple's role in our lives. He is the location where we experience the mercy of God. He is that mercy place. He is the place where most clearly, I think, we see this is God's mercy in action. As Jesus hangs on the cross, both the sacrifice and the high priest, and fulfilling all of these different things, he says, I want you to experience my mercy. Come to me. I didn't come into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through me. That's my heart. I want to dwell with my people. Will you dwell with me? Reaching out in that way. So if you want to experience the presence of God, to me, one of the things we need to do constantly is to push in to Jesus, to regularly be in the Gospels, reading the Gospels, to be asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, reveal more of Jesus' character to my heart and to my mind because I need to experience the presence of God. He's the exact representation of the Father. Jesus' disciples, I think it's Thomas that says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I not been with you all this time? Don't you know if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if we want to know what God's like, if we want to experience his presence, to me, we need to push in and draw near to Jesus Christ. Second, I think we experience God's presence in his current temple. So wow, well, there isn't a temple or a tabernacle around right now. Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 16, it says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And the use there in Greek, it's a distinction between plural and singular. And I like being in the South because that distinction is also made. He says, y'all are God's temple. All y'all are God's temple, right? That God's temple is not just one individual person, but it's the body of Christ. As we gather together, are the place, what, what does a temple do or what does a tabernacle do? It's the place where God's presence is located. And then later on in chapter 6, verse 19, it says this, or do you not know that your body, again, the plural, y'all's body, the gathered body, is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in y'all's body. So this whole idea that collectively we represent God in this world right now. And to me, that says some pretty powerful things about the importance of gathering as God's people. And I know during COVID times, that's been rough. And I think, okay, some of this can happen via a Zoom meeting. That's great. But there's a sense of God's presence that we encounter, I think, 
only when we are gathered physically with our brothers and sisters, like we were this morning, singing praises. There's just a sense of God's presence that's there and that's more palpable as we meet together as a church. And to me, as we function well as a church, we're to be the presence of God to one another. All of us are to be the presence of God. If you come in discouraged, there's someone in the body that has the gift of encouragement that will come up to you and say, how are you doing? Okay. It's like, you don't sound like you're doing that. Okay, what's going on? And then an opportunity to minister to one another. To me, we're going to talk about community kind of as the next spiritual discipline that we're going to talk. We talked about prayer first, but the community is not an optional thing if we're going to experience the presence of God in this world today. It's an essential component of that. And to me, that's one of the things that's made this last year so difficult for many of us is because we're not regularly engaged physically in the presence of one another, and we need that. And again, I'm not against any of this technology, but I just think there's some limitations with that. You know, you click the screen and you're done, and it's it's just, okay, it's better than nothing, <laughs> but it's not as good as being with God's people. Why? Because we are the temple of God collectively. We are the place where God's presence is located in the world today. And to me, the beauty of that is that God's presence can be everywhere that his people gather. Remember Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well? And, you know, Jesus kind of pushes into her a little bit and he's like, yeah, bring your husband. And she's like, he's like, I don't know, I'm not, I was like, yeah, this is your story. And then he said, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she gets into this theological discussion. Okay, let's divert the conversation about my personal life into something theological and theoretical. You know, we say we're to worship on Mount Gerizim, which is the Samaritans. And the Samaritans only recognize the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So the whole monarchy and the temple being in Jerusalem, they weren't about that at all. So you guys say we should worship in Jerusalem. You know, we say it's Mount Gerizim. You know, when the Messiah comes, he'll let us know. And Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. It's very interesting to me that that was one of the few people that Jesus identified himself as the Messiah to. This Samaritan woman with a checkered past. He says, I'm, it's God's mercy, his mercy seat, his location of mercy being right there. And then Jesus says, you know, a time's coming where geographic location Temple, Mount Gerizim, actually the temple is right. Mount Gerizim's wrong, but we're not going to get it because there's a time coming. When God's worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. Where the presence of his spirit is, and I think there's the truth of who Jesus Christ is, who the Messiah is. So wherever God's spirit is present and the truth about who he is is present, that is, in essence, a place where his presence is localized and we can sense that presence in one another. To me, it's a high and holy calling for us to gather as a body of believers. And I know we live in a day and age where that's just like, yeah, I don't really need church. I listen to a great sermon here. It's much better than healthy anyhow. You know, listen to great praise there. Yeah, that that's all cool. And, and I understand that. But you know what? We're not gathering just to hear a sermon. We're not gathering just to sing songs. We're gathering to represent the presence of God to one another as we gather. And that's a super important task for all of us. It's a high and holy calling. And Paul describes the body and he says, I don't care 
where you are and what gifts you have, you're important to this body. And if you're not participating and if you're not involved, then the body is missing out on something, some aspect of the presence of God. So God's calling us to engage with one another, to use the gifts of the spirit that he's given us to manifest his presence in our world today. And that's a hug around the shoulder if you need it from somebody. And you can say that's a hug from God. That's the presence of God because that's how God generally works in his world today is through his people and dwelt by his Holy Spirit with a word of encouragement, with a financial gift, whatever it is, that's God operating and working through his people to manifest his presence. I don't know about you, but I want more and more of that. And the beauty of this passage lets me know that God wants that too. He wants to dwell amongst his people. The question is, do I want it? Am I willing to come in his way through Jesus' sacrifice, through being willing to say, you know what? I need to cleanse myself from some of this junk. I want to enter into your presence. I want to feast on you, Jesus, as the bread of life. I want to look at you as the light of truth that brings illumination to my world. I want to experience the very presence of God I want that more and more. And to me, the beauty of that is God says through Jesus, I want it too. Come on. The door to the east, it's open. I'm knocking. Are you going to let me in? I want to eat with you. I want to feast with you. And I've got stuff in store for you that will blow your mind. And I'm going to give you a little bit of taste of that right now. But you know what? It's going to be so much better later. Hang in there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just how you organized your worship, even for these ancient peoples, as a picture of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Forgive us for ignoring your presence, not pushing into it. Forgive us for wanting to come in our way and not the way that you prescribe. But thank you that you are a God that wants to dwell among your people. And we see that most fully in Jesus Christ. Who took on human form. Who walked among us. Who knows what it's like to experience all the hurt and heartache that we go through. And who ultimately gave his life so that we could have life. So Lord, we just ask and I ask for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would call on you. They would reach out to you. They would ask for your forgiveness, Lord Jesus. They would embrace you in trusting faith. And for those of us who know you, Lord, that we would push into your presence. That we would give what you're asking us to give. And that's time or giving up some habit or whatever it is, Lord, to encounter you. For you and our experience of you is what makes life worth living. Forgive us for looking for life in so many other places. Lord, help us to love you with all we've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And thank you that you accept us despite who we are, that your sacrifice, Jesus, is finished, it's complete, it's perfect, and now we can enter into your presence with boldness and confidence. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. It's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.